This is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching by Gavin Bennett is part seven in our series, Exodus. Uh, have you all been tracking the Cybertruck, the Tesla Cybertruck saga? I feel like after four years, it can be called a, a saga. If you haven't, Tesla is like Prius's cooler stepbrother. Uh, and they've been revolutionizing and crushing the electric car game. And so when rumors started stirring uh, a couple years ago that they were going to be developing a truck, people got really excited. Uh, so excited, this could change the truck industry. Or like that one uncle I have who's like, for some reason, like mad about electric cars. Like maybe he'll get one and like things will be good. But, but, but then in November of 2019, excitement, collective excitement became bewilderment uh, when Tesla revealed this. Some of you haven't seen that yet. The internet thought this was a joke. They thought it was April Fool's in November. They thought somebody's eight-year-old nephew drew something, and Tesla thought, oh, let's try to make it look like it was a real thing and not just a drawing. And, uh, and then your one uncle who's already mad about electric cars got even more upset because that's not a truck. Do you know what I mean? Like that, I don't even know what, what people are buying this. People are actually buying this. I don't know. Um, all that to say, uh, this kind of stuff happens all the time, right? And, and maybe, you know, maybe to be fair, sorry, I'm gonna come back to the Tesla truck for a second. Maybe futuristic zombie hunting is your car aesthetic. <laughs> maybe like that's what you're going for and you're like, oh, this was my dream car and I'm really offending you right now. Let's say that's the truth. I, even if that's the case, it's been four years since the prototype came out and the first one, the real produc- production rolled off the line and you can finally buy it as of a couple weeks ago. That's four years. At best, it's anticlimactic, and that stuff happens uh, all the time. You know, excitement starts to grow, you get really excited about something, uh, and then you're disappointed, and it's, and it's not that your excitement outpaced reality, it's that reality ends up not being really worth any excitement to begin with. Uh, it's like, you, you know, you keep hearing people talk, and Nicolas Cage is in it, and you're like, I'm not going to see that. It's just to this new Coldplay song, and I was like, I don't know, guys, like, like, didn't they release this song already? Because it feels like they just don't do anything new. It's only about that. <laughs> Underwhelming, anticlimactic. Honestly, it's a bit disappointing. And on that note, uh, you are all in the middle of a series on the second book of the Bible, more accurately, scroll of the Bible of the same name called Exodus. Uh, and today we hit that point where most of us stop reading or we keep reading only to pretend that we're actually paying attention and we start to tune out. We're going to talk tonight about the Ten Commandments. Wow, so fun. (laughs) Up until now, uh, the story of Exodus has been cinematic, right? Meaning like literal movies have been made about it. It's cinematic. God's chosen people had been enslaved. uh, And through a wild series of what we call the Ten Plagues, which was a showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt, Yahweh is victorious and Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. But just when you thought it was over, Pharaoh changes his mind and tries to recollect all the Israelites back into enslavement. And so Israel, being led by a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke, they're caught between this enormous unpassable sea and this advancing army army coming to capture them again. So God, what does God do? Splits the sea and the entire nation crosses on dry ground, but just as the last Israelite makes it, the waters crash back onto the murderous Egyptians and God yet again rescues Israel from sudden death. It's like top-notch drama. So All of us are sitting back going, what's going to happen next? And it's not just the story that's progressing. It's not just the narrative that reaches a climax. It's the literary structure of the scroll of Exodus itself. 
Uh, in ancient Near Eastern literature, the structure of a piece of writing was deliberately crafted to highlight certain parts. So the scroll of Exodus, being a great example, is split in half. There's two parts to it, and we find ourselves in the exact middle of those two, which is Bible author for pay attention, something is about to happen. Uh, we have been, you have been climbing a literary and a narrative mountain for the last few months, and what came before this moment that we're going to talk about today has built up to this moment that we're going to talk about today, and everything that comes after it will look back and expound on what we're talking about today. At the beginning of the series, uh, Josh talked about the narrative flow in Exodus. I don't know if you remember this, so I brought the chart back. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. The entirety of the book of Exodus, the scroll of Exodus, follows this narrative arc. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. So what comes today will be part liberation and part renewal. So what happens? Well, it starts with Israel camping at the base of Mount Sinai, where despite their very bad attitudes, Yahweh still extends an invitation into covenant. And the people, they lose their mind. They're ecstatic about this. They're really excited. And in Exodus 19, they tell Moses, we will do everything that Yahweh has said. So Moses takes this answer, this response, this invitation, and goes back up the mountain, and God gives them the Ten Commandments. Uh, and honestly, uh, if you're following a narrative level, I don't feel like it's a really compelling um, new beginning for this people. Uh, even in fourth grade, I remember memorizing, for some reason, somebody thought it was a good idea to have fourth graders memorize the Ten Commandments. And I, so I was like, all right, let's try this. Um, and I remember reading through them in fourth grade being like, read the room, God. Like, these people have been <laughs> through a lot. This is what you're going to give to them? I don't know, man. Um, and then now that I'm older, I'm like, sometimes it can almost feel like a bait and switch, can't it? Like God was like, okay, fun's over, time to get really serious. You know, and then he like gives them the law and people are like, what, what is, what's happening? And not only did it feel anticlimactic at nine, uh, I also remember it feeling really irrelevant, right? Like I read through it and I was like, I, I guess I'm fine. Like I'm a Christian and I didn't really believe in other gods and I went to church on Sundays and I didn't cuss and I never felt tempted to uh, pray to a piece of wood or to bow down to a piece of stone to like, you know, check on the first few commands. And I liked my parents and I would never have thought about hurting someone physically. I was more of a words kid. And that didn't count as, <laughs> as murder, you know what I mean? Uh, I wasn't married. I felt financially stable enough as a child not to consider taking something from anyone else. So, you know, check on the next few. I'm like, we're cruising at this point. Um, I hadn't gone to court yet, so I didn't even have the chance to bear false witness. Um, I knew slavery was bad, uh, and I didn't really know anyone who owned an ox or a donkey that I could have coveted. So I was like, check on the last few. I was like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm like, if this is it, we're in, man. Now, my guess is that most of you are familiar at least with the, the substance or the content of the Ten Commandments. So rather than talking about what they are, which we will do briefly, I want to spend most of our time today talking about why they are, about what God was up to and why the Israelites from the get-go saw the Ten Commandments as the climax of God's generosity and kindness up until this point. And not like we do, looking back at it, like you're reading like that eight-foot receipt you get from Costco, and you're like, that's not fun. I don't want to do that. Like, that's how most of us enter this text. I want to explore today what I was missing until very recently that Israel seemed to understand from the get-go. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Great. That's what we're doing. All right. To start, uh, many of us assume, this is really important, really crucial that you get this as we move forward today. Many of us assume, myself included, that the law was the way by which Israel gained salvation. 
God gave them the law, they followed the law, they were then saved. But that's not the story. You've been listening to the story over the last couple months. Salvation has already happened. The law comes after salvation and not before it, which means that what happens at Sinai, what we're talking about today, cannot be about a prerequisite to salvation. They were already saved, meaning something else was happening. So think back to that rhythm again. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. The law exists because God was not satisfied to stop at liberation. That was not enough for God. For God, he does not just liberate people from enslavement, he liberates people for renewal, which is what we'll talk about today. A decade or so ago, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Foster Parents Night Out, it's a nonprofit organization that kind of serves foster parents in the city, gives uh, parents once a month a respite for four hours uh, where they can go on a date night or whatever else it looks like for them. So about a decade or so ago, my friends and I uh, started Foster Parents Night Out at Bridgetown, and I remember being there uh, a couple years in with this kid, we'll call him Sam for his privacy, uh, who just out of nowhere, just out of nowhere would just like totally book it. He'd just take off, he'd run around the building, the building we do it in is massive, um, there's another church who lets us use their building, huge gymnasium, three floors of classrooms and offices and bathrooms and closets and all kinds of places uh, to run. And so myself and another volunteer, would, we'd get the call on the radio and we would just run with Sam and run and run and run and run until he'd get tired and then he'd go back to class and this was just habitual. Every month, that's what would happen. So I remember one night, uh, in the middle of gym time, he ran. He just booked it, myself, another volunteer, we went with him and after a while, we ended this marathon uh, of him running into a classroom and then he like dove onto her table, laid on his back, and then just like started rambling and kicking the table and having no clue what to do. Uh, I'm about to tell you something that I think that God did. It was not me. So to be clear, for months and months and months, these always ended with me like this saying, hey Sam, not because I'm, not because I'm like trying to meet him at eye level, but because I just ran a marathon. I'm like, hey, <laughs> we, can't, we can't keep doing this. Like, it's not safe. We're not having fun. You know, all this sort of stuff. So this night, I just had no idea what to do. Uh, and so I opted for whatever reason, to, to lay down under the table next to him. We're about five feet away, both on our backs, looking at the table, uh, and there we were. He was kicking the table, talking about what was ever on, whatever was on his mind. I'm feeling totally overwhelmed, totally confused, totally like, what? I don't even know what to do at this point. How much time is left over? And then this other volunteer who is like, why can he not maintain control? He is on the floor with this child instead of maintaining composure like me. And there we lay back to class. And I looked at him, and for no particular reason, curious about where I was going as I was, because I was just trying to make some sort of connection so that we knew it was. But as, I, as he did, when I'm in big spaces with lots of people, and there's lots of noise, I want to run away from that. I think it's really great that you listen to your body, and when you don't feel safe, you choose to leave the room. And he was sort of like, that is not what you've been saying for the last couple months. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He was like... I'm gonna call the bluff, but I felt it like deep. I was like, actually, no, 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 and I reiterated to him, I think it's actually really good. I said, do you know what I do that helps me when I feel that? Whenever I feel that, I ask somebody to go with me so that I'm not just not afraid, I'm also not alone. Do you think that next time you start to feel that way, you can grab one of your leaders and no questions asked, they'll grab another leader and they'll just walk over with you to another room that's quiet and just hang out for a bit until you feel ready to go back. 
And he said yes, and I thought, great, another one done, let's go back to class. Um, fast forward to the next year, and Sam's whole experience at Foster Parents Night Out has changed. He was not only just able to stay in gym time, he was helping the teachers teach gym time. Something happened in that space that made him start to feel safe. Uh, Dr. Carmen Imes, in her book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, which you're going to hear a lot from today, she calls this under-the-table talk liminal space. And in fact, she argues that all of Israel's time at Mount Sinai and in the wilderness at large is liminal space. She writes, and this is really important, some of you I think need to hear this tonight, trust is not automatic, and God doesn't expect it to be. God patiently works on Israel's behalf until they can see that he is worthy of their confidence. God's guidance and protection of the Israelites cultivate their trust in him and in Moses. The wilderness is his classroom. He has work to do in the Israelites that can only be done in liminal space. Or as Dr. Nijay Gupta puts it, we have to learn how to love and trust and obey God. Liminal space is the space in between who you are and who you were. It is this space of becoming. It's the first week of orientation at college. It's that one-hour wait in, your, in line at your favorite restaurant. It's the plane ride to your vacation. It's the nine months before your baby is born. It's the honeymoon after your wedding. It's the 20 minutes in every superhero origin movie where they've got their superpowers and they're wearing some pajama version of their final costume and they're learning how to use... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is liminal space. Liminal space is where we are allowed the unusual opportunity to receive and integrate something. Liminal space is not about compliance, it's about participation. It's not about obedience, it's about a reorientation of relationship. And it involves this odd feeling of being outside of time and in unlikely ways you get to interact with your past and your present and your future all at once. When we consider what God is up to in giving the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, I think they fit this mold. God has in mind the past and present and future of the people of Israel. A word on each. Uh, now, quick side note, while we describe God's actions with any human terms, it will always and can only be anthropomorphic, which just means at some point it's going to fall apart. The analogy is going to fall apart. The metaphor is going to fall flat. That's true. And one of the best analogies I can find to describe what I think God is up to with Israel in the desert is uh, in relationship to their past is something that we modern Western folks might call trauma-informed care. Now, far from being an overly therapeutic interpretation of what's going on, I actually think it's character proof of who God is going to reveal himself to be when just a few chapters later, Moses asks to see God's glory. There is a deep difficulty in working through trauma of unlearning narratives that our experiences have taught us. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not cute. It's not Instagrammable. It's really hard, and you have to choose it. And there is a jealousy required in caring for people who have encountered trauma. There's a fierceness of believing something for them on their behalf that they're not yet able to hold. It's a hope about their identity, about who they are, and about their future, about who they're becoming. God is seeking to uproot Israel's sin, like worshiping idols, but also 
to heal their trauma of enslavement and displacement and the chronic traumas of poverty and abuse and dehumanization. In giving the law to Israel, God was fiercely holding on to who Israel was created to be and who they were becoming. God was uprooting identities that they had been given by other human beings and other identities that they had taken on themselves in place of ones that he had built into them from their conception. God's plan was to help heal Israel so that they could become the people that God created them to be. Now, that sounds great, but we all know you can pick any other story that goes on in the rest of the scriptures, and Israel, uh, we find that while there's always a remnant, Israel, the majority of them don't follow God's plan wholeheartedly. Uh, working through trauma is not easy, and like Israel, we don't always participate in our own healing. But even then, even when Israel has chosen another path, they've disowned God, they've moved to do their own thing, even then, God's intentions for them never changed. And God reflects on this himself through the prophet Hosea centuries and centuries later. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. I want us tonight to come to understand the Ten Commandments as God getting under the table with a nation who was racked with trauma and fear and pain, who was confused about what was happening and absolutely terrified about what would happen next. In fact, right before God gives these 10 commandments, which we're about to talk about, he reminds Israel who he is. He says, I, the one who I'm about to tell you these things, I am Yahweh, not just a God, but your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's saying, I'm the one who rescued you, the one who wants your best, the one who heard your cries, intervened, and delivered you. God is inviting their trust and then he lists out the 10, and then after the 10, it goes on, and the people become afraid. And Moses then steps in, and he appeals to them on God's behalf, reminding them who God was, what God has done, and to tell them not to be afraid, but to trust God. Which leads me to God's vision of Israel's present and future. In the present, the law was preparing Israel for the promised land. And in the future, even if they didn't know it yet, the law was preparing them for the coming Messiah. God is not dumb. God knew that Israel was imperfect, uh, that they could and probably would fail, uh, which is why I don't think that perfect obedience to the law was what God expected, let alone what God was even after. I think that as we read the scriptures, as we look at what God was after, God's intention seemed to be for them to learn to keep the law. Dr. Imes writes when she's talking about the Ten Commandments, this, the Ten Commandments, is not legislation in the modern sense, and this is important, we'll come back to this, but character formation. These instructions paint an ideal picture of a covenant-keeping Israelite, including both outward behavior and inward motivation. And she goes on to write, in other words, you can trust the God who's thundered on the mountain. Why? He expects a lot from you, but... And Jesus even, the exact image of God, times for this. 
God has always been after something more and transformation and the increasing knowledge with him. And so it matters that the Ten Commandments were given to, Israelite, or to the Israelites in this liminal space because it reminded them that their outer journey matched their inner journey. God was working to restore his people, to uproot the cyclical nature of sin. God knew that without intervention, the sins that the people incurred could only be reproduced by them. So he gives the Ten Commandments, which then become, as the foundation of life in covenant with God, become a sort of bill of other people's rights. Not a bill of my rights. Covenant with Yahweh is built around a bill of other people's rights. In the law, God was giving Israel a map, not to get out of the desert, but to get the desert out of them. And not to get into the promised land, but to get the promised land into them. The Ten Commandments were the means by which God was helping Israel to recalibrate who they were now. It was a care plan, an action plan, a framework by which to reinterpret the world, to know the God who saved them, to learn obedience, and to establish a new way of doing life together in relationship with God and in relationship with God's people. Now imagine for a second, I think you guys have talked about this before, but imagine for a second living in the ancient Near East where all you knew was that there were things outside of your control, like weather and fertility and crops, and your whole world revolved around these things, so makes sense that somebody else controls them. It must be one of these gods out there. And your survival revolved on the, around them, so your survival revolved around worship of these other gods. The problem was that these other gods were fickle. They were unpredictable. You didn't really know what they expected. They never really talked to you. It was really kind of like a, let me try this and see if it works sort of thing. So let's say one year you have a great crop. You planted everything, everything. You're like, this is great. This will feed us for a year until we need to do this again. This is awesome. How do we thank this God? Well, let's probably give 5% of the crop, right? That gives us enough, and let's give 5% to the God. Fast forward the next year, another great crop. Does 5% look stingy? I don't know. Is it, can you risk that? What happens if you risk that next year, and it was stingy, and the God thought, so you give 10%. And year after year, this continued until things became so unhinged that people began sacrificing their own children, assuming if we didn't do this, what if the gods didn't feed any of us and we all died? This is the context for Israel's interaction with Yahweh. You see, gods did not make covenants with people. People made covenants with people, but God's never made covenants with people. So the Ten Commandments help answer the question that nobody had an answer to. What does it mean or what does it entail to be in covenant with Yahweh? And so the law then uh, was a means by which Israel could know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they were right with God. This God, Yahweh, was not fickle. There was no way to misunderstand. This God was clear and kind. And it's worth saying that these rules in the law, in the Torah, in the Ten Commandments. They weren't for the, the nations surrounding Israel. God was not being that neighborhood parent who's trying to discipline other kids in the neighborhood. Don't do that, it's weird. <laughs> Israel's neighbors were not in covenant with Yahweh. Israel was. This was the house rules of Israel. 
And Israel then was grateful for the law. They were grateful to realize, what does it mean that God is not fickle? What does it mean that God is clear? The law becomes a gift to them. And and there was and there is deep conviction in the minds of faithful Jewish and Christian people that the law is a gift. It was given for our good. If you don't believe me, go home and read all of Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm, and it's all about the beauty of the law. Um, Or Psalm 19 is a great kind of short version of that. Here's an excerpt of Psalm 19. The law, the Torah of Yahweh is perfect. Why? What does it do? It refreshes the soul. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of Yahweh are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of Yahweh are firm, and all of them are righteous. They, the laws, the commands, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. What was the gift? The gift was that Israel knew what it meant to be in right relationship with God. The law was not ever about earning salvation. It was about expressing salvation. They were already saved. It was about reflecting God's identity to the nations around them that they might tell the world of the goodness of this God who chose them. And that while other nations may make covenants with other nations, Israel made a covenant with God. So what were the terms of this covenant? How did Israel show the world, how did they express their salvation and show the world that they were different and that God chose them? The Ten Commandments are the first ten of 613 commands in the Torah called the mitzvot. And most scholars and historians agree that these ten serve as a thesis or a primer for where the rest of those 613 are going. So that's why they're separated out at the beginning. But it may surprise you, that feels like a weird thing for everybody to agree on. Everybody agrees on that. It may surprise you to know that not everybody agrees on how to number the Ten Commandments. Um, Passages like Exodus 34, 28, among others, tell us that there are indeed ten. Do you have that slide? It's okay if you don't. And God wrote the tablets, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. But we're never told anywhere how to actually number them. So for our purposes today, Brand new news to me, by the way, two weeks ago. Had no idea. I'm telling you this like it's old news. I had no clue. I just remember like reading this list and reading this list. I'm like, why aren't these the same? I'm like, what list did I memorize? I don't know. Um, For our purposes today, I'm going to use Dr. Imes' order of numbering because I think she does a great job of, there's two classic systems, and I think she does a great job of combining both of them. Uh, And so I think some of you will be familiar with one of them. Some of you will be familiar with another one. So we'll use hers. Um, But either way, you can follow along in Exodus 20 as we talk through the Ten Commandments. Dr. Imes suggests that the first command includes verses 2 through 6, all of that, 2 through 6, beginning with a declaration, remember, and a reminder about who God is. Yahweh goes on to say that he alone is to be their God. So command one is worship only Yahweh. Among all the other gods and deities and idols in the world, all of your friends had different gods, all the surrounding nations, our allegiance was to be only to Yahweh. And in this command, we're also told not to make any images of God. Why not? Because in Genesis 1, God says, let us make humans in our image. That's why we don't make images of God, because we are those images. We are the icons of who God is. 
We carry God's image, which is closely then tied to the second command in verse seven, that as we carry God's image, so we are to carry God's name, which is a Hebrew idiom for his reputation. So command two, represent Yahweh well. This is a clue that we then use. We take this command and we use it to understand the whole rest of the law. More than just not using God's name or title when you swear, probably not less than that, but probably more, it means that when the world around you looks at the way that you live, your words, your actions, your behaviors, your communities, they need to represent Yahweh well. The the surrounding nations, if you will, your friends, your neighbors need to look at you, look at your life, and by watching you, understand who Yahweh is. You are to represent Yahweh well. The next chunk then gives us the third command, but I do think it's crucial to remember two things about the Sabbath. One, we have to understand, which means that as bearers of God's image and bearers of God's reputation, this would have been counterintuitive to a formerly enslaved people who almost certainly would have worked seven days a week. God is telling them, in this new economy, in my economy, rest is crucial. It wasn't simply the master of the house who rested either. In this command, as we read, everyone, even the animals, Yahweh found it that important that the animals were even included. Everyone gets to rest, which means that each Sabbath is an expression of trust in Yahweh's provision. Command four, honor your father and mother. And note, there was no change of audience here. We oftentimes think this is for the kids, right? We get to command four, and everyone kind of like looks down at their kids, you're like, did you listen to that one? You're like, say that, say that one again real quick. It's for us. Everyone is to honor their parents. Why? Because in a predominantly oral culture where Israel found themselves, the stories and covenant laws that knit together the fabric of God's people were passed on by their parents. Uh, and it meant to take care of them in their old age, which was a statement about the permanence of God's image in us. God's image in me does not change as I get older. Now, probably not related to number four, who can say? After, don't, after honor your father and mother comes, don't murder. Uh, number five, you must not murder. Feels like an odd shift there. It's like, whoa, somebody rocked the boat. Don't murder. This one feels pretty straightforward, but the verb for murder here is actually used in the scriptures in multiple ways um, to denote both premeditated killing, what we typically think of when we think of murder, as in 1 Kings 21, but also it includes accidental killing, as in Numbers 35. It's like when your millstone randomly falls onto somebody else and they die. You didn't have any intention of that. You didn't even have ill will towards them. That is still considered murder. Why? It doesn't matter how or why someone's life is being taken. Without divine approval, we must never do it. It's a reminder that all of us, even our enemies, carry the image of God, and our job is to be careful to honor that. But not only that, think back for a second to Exodus 2. Remember when Moses murdered somebody? You can bet the people did, right? He's up there going like, and number five, don't murder. Anyway, number six, do you know what I mean? Like, the people knew, people were like, go back to that one, say a couple more things about that. I think this is hinting at the grace found in the law that even the person telling you the words of the Lord has already himself broken the law. I think Yahweh is saying in this that there will be and is always a way back into relationship with God. Next, number six, you must not commit adultery. Rooted in the Eden ideal, Yahweh is saying that sexual intimacy is reserved for the covenant of marriage. Why? 
It's not archaic. It's beautiful. Why does this matter? Because marriage reflects Israel's covenant with Yahweh. Both parties, Israel and Yahweh, husband and wife, give themselves wholly to each other and to no one else. Number seven, you must not steal. If I take something that's yours, I'm displaying a lack of gratitude and trust for what God gives me. If there was a theme of uh, commands five through 10, I think it would sound something like, there is enough for everyone and Yahweh himself will provide. Number eight, you must not give false testimony. Slander would easily eat away the community like acid. So this command was about protecting the dignity of others by speaking honestly to them and about them behind their backs. And then finally, Dr. Imes combines numbers nine and 10 uh, really helpfully like this. You must not covet your neighbor's house and you must not covet your neighbor's wife or any other household member. Now, far from God going like, oh man, I meant to get to 10, but there's eight. I don't know, let's try to split this last one into two. That's 10. Something's happening here. What? These two commands are different than all other eight because they are entirely unprovable. You can't enforce coveting. There's no way to prove coveting. You can't prove that someone craved your house or coveted your house. Why? Because if they acted on it, that would be stealing. And you can't prove that they've coveted after your wife. Why? Because if they acted on it, that would be adultery. God is getting at coveting as a heart posture. And it's the internal uh, nature of these final two commands that hints at the function, which we just talked about earlier, of the entire law, character formation. It was about who these people were becoming. And if you're still not with me, the final proof that these commands were more than just a list of do's and don'ts that we need to put outside of our courthouse, it's how Jesus himself actually interprets some of these in the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus, the really explicit and clear, and in Hebrew it's only like a couple words long, command about murder wasn't just about murder. It was about anger and how we steward ourselves when we're mad at someone. And that one about adultery wasn't just about having sex with someone who isn't your spouse. It was about lust and the way that we allow our mind and our heart to consume and use the images of other people. Jesus, looking at the Ten Commandments, ramped them up, not down. This is important, though, held in tangent with the fact that Jesus was not a legalist. What was Jesus doing? For Jesus, the law was about character formation, about who we were becoming and about how everything that we did did something back to us. Everything was formational, about how our lives either told the story of the good news of God's grace and mercy and love for the people who he made in his image, or it tells another story. Now, to end, there's one more detail that I think is really easy to miss, but I think wraps all of this up and displays so profoundly a beautiful reality about who God is. And it's a question you may have never asked, I never asked. Uh, why did Moses come down the mountain with two stones? Did you ever think about that? Uh, it wasn't because it was easier to carry for Moses. It wasn't because God couldn't find a rock big enough to write all 10 down. It wasn't that God had big, you know, kindergartner handwriting and couldn't fit up the first page and he had to get another page. What was God after? There's, there's a lot of interpretations about why there were two, but I was really captured by one in particular. Many scholars think that the two stones were actually identical copies of each other. 
uh, because in that era, when a covenant was made among two nations, two copies of that covenant were made and put up in the town squares of each of the nations so that both nations could remember what they're covenanting to. But we go on to read that both copies of this covenant, both copies of the Ten Commandments, both stones were put into the temple before God. And not up front so that when you, know, when you walk into the annex here, you see you know, Josh and Cam's rules of being, going to Van City. It was in the Holy of Holies. It was in a place that only one person went once a year. Both copies of the covenant were before God. Why? Because while we are to learn to obey Yahweh and to follow these commands, Yahweh is the covenant keeper. It means that Yahweh himself will hold up not just his side of the, co- the covenant, but our side of the covenant of well, as well, the fulfillment of which is reached in Jesus when God came as a human to hold up our end of the covenant forever. That means then that a sin against a neighbor is a sin against God. God himself is the protector of each person, the, inv- uh, the avenger for injustice on their behalf. It's why King David, later in the scriptures, broke some of what we consider more of the people-oriented commands, just light things like adultery and coveting and murder. Um, he, he reflects on that in Psalm 51, and he says, I have sinned against God alone. I mean, you murdered somebody. You stole somebody's wife. I have sinned against God alone. That means that all of the law is connected to loving God, which is why Jesus himself sums it up by saying two things. Love God, and he goes on to say the second is like it. Can you start to see why this was good news? It's the image of level healing for a hope for the future and for the promise of security. The Ten Commandments were the intro into the law that God was using to prepare them for the promise himself and hold up our end of the covenant forever. Now, as I've sat with this text, I have felt so met by God, really surprisingly met by God. And anyone who knows me, not many of you in the room, some of you who do, know that I love rules. And it's a weird thing to love. I love rules. I love a new board game because I really like the mechanics, but I love learning the rules and I love helping other people learn the rules. You can ask um, Josh and Patrick and Abby about how D&D goes with me. Uh, Rules bring me comfort and safety because I have learned to find success in rule-based systems. But as I've been preparing for tonight, I've felt God whisper to me that this kind of success that I find in rule-based systems is not based in love, it's based in fear. In doing so, I'm asking questions like, what will happen if I do something wrong? Or can I lose my belovedness if I'm not totally perfect? And I find myself, like Sam, emotionally crawling under a table and hiding from the chaos around me and the chaos in me. And this last week, these last few weeks, God has crawled under the table with me and laid down next to me. And as we lay there together, God has been showing me some of what I've, about how I viewed about the law has been all wrong. It was never about whether or not God would love me. It was about whether or not I would let God love me. Love came before the law. Salvation came before the law. It was about whether or not I would let God free me. Would I participate in my own freedom? 
with God. The, the law invites us to be blessable, image-bearing partners of a kind and loving God. The law was never about control. God's never cared about that. It was never about God's control. The law was never about our control. The law has always been about freedom. And it's why Jesus himself goes on to say, when he comes and he talks, he says, oh, I didn't come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it, to bring the freedom that the law promised. And as I've rested in all of this, as I've sat with it before the Lord, I have felt invited yet again to return to God the right of deciding what's good for my life, what's good for me, because God is trustworthy with those decisions. And as I learn and have been practicing to trust God's goodness, I feel invited to take a step deeper into holiness or consecration, which are kind of churchy ways of saying, into setting myself apart for the purposes of God's glory alone. Not to earn anything, I have tried, doesn't work, but because that is who God's made me to be. God has made us to set ourselves apart for his glory alone, and it's because he's worthy of it. Friends, our life is one of love and a call to holiness under the banner of God's goodness. And as I've prayed for you this week, I was praying for you on the car ride here too, I've been wondering if some of you wouldn't have been feeling the same sort of stirrings in yourself around God's goodness and a call then into God's holiness. If you have, may you listen to these stirrings and then with me, may we together turn towards the God who has never left our side. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.